Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, a speaker, author, and apologetics professor at Talbot Theological Seminary, Biola University. I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. We're here with Professor Alan Gomes today. Dr. Gomes is professor of historical theology at Talbot, has been for some time. He's a specialist on the Reformation. Uh, in fact, we tease him at Talbot about spending his academic career studying dead theologians, uh, which he does not deny. No, I don't. Uh, but this, this Proud is, of it. <laughs> this is a big year for the Reformation. Uh, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, and Alan, we're delighted you can come be with us to help us explore for our listeners a bit further some of the legacies of the Reformation, some which we've held on to pretty well, and maybe others that we've held on to not so well. Mm-hmm. So first, tell us, uh, what, what are some of the most common misconceptions that you think people have about the Protestant Reformation? Well, I think that uh, one of the most common misconceptions is that the Protestant Reformation was fundamentally a kind of revolution. In other words, that it turned everything upside down. Actually, the Protestant Reformation made only a couple of course corrections, but they're very important course corrections. So on the one hand, we don't want to overstate the differences. There's massive continuity, actually, between the Reformation and the Christian tradition taken as a whole. But nevertheless, the two issues uh, on which the Reformation turns, really, is the question of authority. So what is the source of authority in the Christian life, Uh, the source of authority for theology? Uh, And then the other question is, how is it that the saving work of Christ actually comes to apply to any particular individual, to you and to me? Those are the two issues, and they're hugely important issues. But we should also realize that in terms of the doctrine of the Trinity, the person of Christ, uh, even the doctrine of Scripture as far as being authoritative and the Word of God. These are all things that the Reformers had in common with their Roman Catholic adversaries. So is it accurate to say that the Protestant Reformation is not bringing in new ideas, but bringing us back to the ideas taught by Jesus and Paul and the very first followers of him? Is that fair or is that too simplistic? I think that's fair. The reformers are looking back to the sources. Ad fontes is kind of the uh, one of the battle cries of the Reformation. And so not only in this period is there a rediscovery of classics and other kind of literature, um, but there also is greater attention given to biblical studies, to going back to the New Testament, and then comparing the practices of their day uh, with practices that they see as normative in the Bible. We're going to come to some of the practical applications of the Reformation for today, but can you give us like a thumbnail summary of some of the main themes that characterized the Reformation? Now, people often express these in terms of solas of the Reformation. Mm-hmm. What are these solas? And explain them in simple and concise terms so okay. us non-theologians and historians can get them. Okay, I think our, lis- our listeners, I think, also need to be aware that uh, Dr. Gomes teaches a virtually a whole semester course on the Reformation. That's right. So he's trying to summarize what he does in the whole semester here in the next 
you know, three or four minutes. So that's good, right. Good luck with that. Yeah, I know. So give us your Twitter version. <laughs> My Go. Twitter version. Well, I think that the Reformation solas are a reasonably good way to condense it. And what the solas are are essentially two and, in one case, three-word Latin sound bites that capture the main themes of the Reformation. Let me just list them off and then say a couple words about each one. So uh, we've got sola scriptura, the Bible alone. We've got sola gratia, grace alone, or by grace alone. We've got sola fide, by faith alone. And then we have solus Christus, Christ alone. And then the, the fifth one is soli deo gloria, which would be glory to God alone. Okay? Now, sola scriptura means that, and this is Luther's teaching as well as any of the reformers, all the mainstream reformers, this is so. Uh, the Bible is not just one source of authority for the Christian. The Bible is the source of authority for the Christian. And so this has to do with all matters of faith and practice, for how we construct our theology. The Bible is the soul and sola <laughs> source uh, of authority uh, for the Scripture. Now, this contrasts with the Roman Catholic view. In the Catholic view, Scripture is authoritative, Scripture is inspired. However, for them, it's scripture plus tradition, and then the third leg of the stool is as interpreted through the teaching magisterium of the church. The reformers say, no, it's not tradition, and it's not the church, but it's the Bible, and the Bible alone, and what it teaches is authoritative. So that's sola scriptura. And then sola gratia means we're saved by grace alone. Now, actually, just taking that on its face, the Catholics would agree, oh, yeah, salvation is by grace alone. But that's because God graciously allows us to be able to earn merit. Now, this is kind of a contradiction in terms, and that becomes clear when we look at sola fide, that the way in which salvation is appropriated by the individual is by simple faith alone. The Catholic position is that we're saved by grace through faith plus works. The Reformation position is that we're saved by faith, full stop. Okay. Um, then, of course, solus Christus is clear enough that salvation is by Christ alone, apart from any other mediators, whether it's Mary, the intercession of the saints, the, the Pope, Christ plus the church. No, it's Christ. Christ is the sole Savior, and that's it. And then, of course, as a result of these things, the glory goes fully to God. So, soli deo gloria means glory to God alone. He receives the full glory for everything accomplished in our salvation. Okay. Thank you. That, that's a really helpful, I think, th thumbnail sketch. Is that short it's, enough? That was, no, that was excellent. <laughs> I just crammed my uh, Reformation uh, theology uh, hey, class. Hey, you, you nailed it. <laughs> I nailed it. <laughs> you get the pun? <laughs> yeah, that's just make sure. I, I, got the, I got the pun. Yeah. Though some hey. say Luther may have posted it with a pot of glue or that somebody else besides him may have posted it, but we, we won't get into that. Let, let, let's make sure all our listeners do, do understand, though, what that that event that actually triggered the Protestant Reformation was Luther's uh, and his his uh, ninety five thesis. thesis. Tell us a little, tell our listeners a little bit more about that event. Well, I mean, it is an oversimplification when you do history to talk about like one event or or even one individual like Luther who sort of lowered down from heaven on a sheet and ushers in this Reformation. You know, with his you mean, that's writing. not how it worked. No, that's not oh. how it worked. So really, there were a lot of factors at play, a lot of political factors, economic factors, religious unrest, a lot of things going on. So it's not really true that, you know, Luther just 
brought in the Reformation by sticking some paper up on a door. Um, the fact is, Luther was more surprised than anybody else that the 95 Theses represented a kind of tinderbox that set off this, this Reformation. The, you have to understand, these were theses, in other words, propositions, neatly numbered, uh, technical propositions that were designed for academic debate. The way in which education was done in that period, and even for hundreds of years before and for quite a long time after, is that people working on degrees would essentially have to argue their way out of the school in, in getting the degree. And so it, it was a pretty rowdy system, actually. But uh, these were academic theses written in Latin, no less, so the common people wouldn't be able to understand them. Um, and they were designed for technical academic debate. So in doing this, the, there was not, this was not like an act of vandalism or something, you know. The, the, you know, you have a bulletin board, you're posting theses for academic debate, and this is just done all the time. It, and Luther wasn't doing it to ignite a powder keg. He was as surprised as anybody else. Now what happened, and here we get to the fact that other factors have to happen besides Luther just, uh, you know, dropping down out of the sky, we have this thing called the printing press that isn't too too long, kind of the internet of its day. Uh, and people copied these theses, translated them, and started distributing them broadly. And so now people are looking at this and saying, whoa, um, you know, we've got some problems here. They knew there were problems, of course, but I mean, it sort of put voice to some of these things. But actually, when you look at the 95 theses, and we won't take the time to go through them, but just in general, they're relatively mild and pretty deferential to Catholic teaching, just singling out the worst abuses. So, so really, um, you know, Luther, Luther didn't think he was doing anything particularly radical, and they had a much greater effect than he would have envisioned happening. So, so it'd, be, it'd be fair to say that he was, he was pretty well caught off guard by the response that they got? Uh, I think got. that's fair to say. That it definitely wasn't the response he was thinking would happen. Can you tell us a little bit about Luther, just the kind of person that he was, maybe his life background that would motivate him to do this at this stage in history and in his life? Well, boy, that's a complex question. Um, Luther was certainly somebody who loved truth. And then you also have to look at, in understanding Luther, and in this sense, he reminds us a bit of St. Augustine who is a model in many ways for the later reformers, and that is that his spiritual pilgrimage, or let's put it this way, his theology in some ways is a reflex of his religious life. Uh, here's a person who is going through tremendous angst, spiritual angst, uh, striving to have peace with God. And um, this whole indulgence thing fits, uh, you know, I mean, we, we can't untangle right now all of the pieces of this, but you can see how it relates to a doctrine of grace versus a doctrine of merit, a God who saves uh, freely uh, as opposed to a God who requires works, uh, this kind of thing. So Luther is deeply struggling with these things, coupled with the fact that as a professor of theology, and when he took his, his uh, vows, you know, uh, he believed that he had an obligation to stand up for and defend the truth. So there's a number of things in his personality and in his spiritual background that would lead him. And he was he was quite fearless, actually. Uh, he wanted to uh, 
to to debate these things and get a hearing and to really explore it all the way to to the end. But at the time, again, that he posted the theses, there was no thought. In fact, there never was a thought that Luther wanted to break away from the church and start some kind of denomination, right? He was given the left foot of fellowship when Pope Leo X excommunicated him with the bull exurge domine that uh, uh, booted Luther from the church. So he was a son of the church. He wanted to reform the only church that he knew, but he felt these issues and as his as studies of the Word of God, particularly his studies in the Book of Romans, uh, convinced him these were crucial things that had to be addressed, and he was going to address it. Let's go back just a minute to a couple of these solas. Yes. Uh, the, uh, grace alone and mm -hmm. faith alone. It seems to me one of the most important legacies of the Reformation is the, that re reaffirmation of salvation by grace through faith alone. But one of the practical implications, it seems to me, that we need to address is that if salvation by grace is true, as the reformers, as the Bible taught, and as the reformers sort of resurrected, right? Uh, if that, if if Luther's teaching on this is true, how does this keep the the, the Christian from becoming something akin to a spiritual couch potato, <laughs> right? Without without having to be motivated to do anything, yes, uh, by by way of service or sure sure works. Well, Go ahead, Sean. Oh, I was going to yeah, I've been asked this question by Muslims and Mormons, so it gets sure, to the heart of how sure. we practice out our faith. Yeah, well, yeah. Mormons have a word for people like us, that is to say Protestant Christians. We're gracers because, hey, you think that you're saved by grace, so you can just break the commandments of God. So, okay, well, well first of all, Scott, you're right in saying that the doctrine of justification by faith is a critical doctrine for the Reformation. Luther himself singled out that doctrine as the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. So, obviously, he thought that was pretty darn important to single that out. Uh, justification by faith alone. Okay? And secondly, the charge, as you've kind of summarized it, was brought against Luther's doctrine from day one, uh, and it's still brought against Luther's doctrine, and really this is just classic Protestant theology on salvation by faith alone, so it's not just Luther, but certainly Luther. It's continually brought, um, brought against us today. So what's the response to that, is what you're asking. Well, actually, it might seem to some paradoxical, but it isn't when you look at it, that Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone not only, not only does not turn us into spiritual couch potatoes, but actually furnishes the strongest basis of all for doing works in the Christian life. And, and in fact, doing works that actually count for something. That's the key thing. It really does. You want me to tell you how? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm yeah. on the edge of my you're, seat here. You're all, Come on. You're all ears. <laughs> Come on. Okay, okay. I'll get there. Okay, so, so here's the thing. In the Catholic system in which Luther's you know, having this great spiritual struggle, uh, a person who is really serious about the salvation of his or her soul would have a religious calling. They would go into a religious calling or vocation, right? And the idea was, given the Roman Catholic doctrine of merit, if you spend full time trying to rack up merit by praying all the time and attending masses and venerating relics and doing all of these kinds of things where, whereby you could... Uh, rack up spiritual brownie points, 
then of course the more merit, the greater the chance you have of pleasing God and of securing a, a high spiritual estate and status for yourself, right? Well now, if Luther's doctrine of justification by faith is true, and you're accepted by God purely by faith alone, and as accepted as you're ever going to be by faith alone, then obviously you don't have to spend your time trying to coax a holy God into thinking that you're good enough for a place in heaven. I mean, the average workaday person who's, you know, dividing his or her time milking cows and changing diapers, well, they can gain some merit because they can go to mass and uh, observe the feast days and the like. But really, they, it, I mean, just simple math tells you that if you're spending 24-7 racking up merit, you can get more merit than if you're divided, dividing your time with worldly pursuits, right? So, of course, Luther's doctrine completely, which is the Bible doctrine here, let's understand this, um, completely does away with this, right? You're, you're accepted by God as a free gift by faith alone and Christ alone. Now, what Luther points out, though, is that although God doesn't so to speak, need our works in order to save us, and that we don't need to do works to, to cajole rather, a holy God. Guess who does need our works, Luther asks? Our neighbor. Our neighbor needs our works. And so the fact that we are fully accepted by God on the basis of faith frees us up to go into the world and to serve people through acts of love, because our neighbor needs us to unclog her toilet or to help with uh, meals when he's sick or to give a word of encouragement when she's down. See, these kinds of things are, whereas you see, if you're spending your time cloistering yourself uh, away in a monastery and trying to rack up all these brownie points with God, well, that's time you're not spending helping somebody who needs your help. And so, you see, this is, uh, here's, I got a good quote from Luther in front of me. I'm going to give this one to you for free. How about that? What a Lu deal. Wow. <laughs> I know, what Man. a deal. Okay, <laughs> I won't even charge you for this one. The <laughs> others, well, no, okay, he says, the Christian life does not consist of what such men as monks invent. It does not drive people into the wilderness or cloister. It is Satan who commands you to forsake men. I mean, come on, come on, Luther, don't beat around the bush. What are you really thinking? <laughs> it's Satan who commands you to forsake men. On the contrary, the Christian life sends you to people, notice this, to those who need your works. So works become necessary in the Christian life. They are necessary in the Christian life because that's how we serve other people, not through some man-made kind of piety by which we think we can... Um, impress a holy God. So does this help in any way address the seeming contradiction between Paul who says you are saved and justified in Romans purely by grace and James who says or seems to say well it's grace and faith and works Now I'm guessing or I know Luther had some issues with James at different yes. stages in his life but does that help the point you made to reconcile how he saw salvation in Paul compared with James, or how would he make sense of that tension? Well, I'll tell you how I make sense out of that tension. Since yeah, Luther did have some problems with James, but the the uh, and that, and I think that's because he perhaps misunderstood what James was getting at, at at that point, and he thought James maybe tended to harp on the law or something like that. The Lutheran Church, by the way, doesn't follow that position. The later Lutheran theologians are very very clear about that, but. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, as for the discrepancy between James and Paul, there's no discrepancy because although they, although James says we're justified by works and Paul says we're justified by faith, and they use the same word justify there, there's a range of meaning for what the word justify has. So Paul is talking about being declared righteous by an act of God whereby we stand before the bar of God's justice vindicated. God regards us as having met his law, and this happens entirely, solely, sola fide, by faith alone, right? James, rather, is talking very clearly of justification as to show to be righteous. And in other words, here the idea is demonstrating the reality of faith through works and bringing it back to our question of vocation, one way in which we show the transformation that God has done in our heart by grace alone, through faith alone, is how we treat other people, how we put their needs above our own, and how we seek to fulfill our vocations in, uh, in serving, serving people. So this is what Luther meant by the term of the, the worldly calling? Huh. Right. So in other words, uh, Luther believes there are people who just do their workaday jobs without any reference to God. But for the Christian, Luther is very clear that our calling is something that we do to bring glory to God, that it, there's more to it than just earning a salary. Now, there's nothing wrong with earning a salary. But so when Luther will, can, can speak of our outward station in life, our calling in terms of, you know, being, uh, and, and, and by the way, we have multiple callings. It's not like we only have one calling. So calling, Luther has that as pretty broad. It refers to one's station in life, such as being a father, a parent, a son-in-law, a husband, as well as being, you know, a butcher, uh, a theologian. That's a, a, a calling. Luther was a priest and, and so forth. Um, so, so, yeah, you, you have these, these kind of outward stations in life, and, and that would be one's calling. But for the Christian, uh, there's something more to it than that. We're serving God and we're serving our neighbor. And also, Luther points out, it's in our workaday lives that is the arena in which God sanctifies us, in which he brings trials, sufferings, and other things into the Christian life, more so than some kind of exotic spiritual technologies, you know, that, uh, um, you know, flagellating yourself with a whip, as Luther did to himself in the monastery and different things like that. It, it's actually a lot simpler than that. And, and people can spiritualize it and make it complex, but it really is uh, that God works in our lives and through us into other people's lives through the day-to-day -day callings that we, we, uh, in which we find ourselves. So would it be fair to say that uh, Luther and the other reformers uh, changed the way the church viewed the, the, so the dignity of everyday, ordinary work? Yes. I, well, certainly it changed the way Protestants viewed it. <laughs> Maybe okay. not everybody was no. sold, but sure. Because in the, in the classic uh, you know, traditional view, and you can look at Thomas Aquinas, for example, and what he says about religious callings, clearly the people who were thought to have a calling are the ones who are called to religious orders. Right. So, if you are uh, called to be a monk, or uh, or maybe uh, you know a priest, or something like this, well, these are the people that have a calling. The other people, well, they just have jobs and they got to do it, and you know. But there is, see, one of the things that Luther's theology does is it drives a stake into the heart of the sacred secular distinction. We've just got to get rid of that. 
we've got to get rid of that. And and in fact, it's something that you know we think, well, wow, look how long it's been since the Reformation. I still have to beat that out of my students. Now, of course, I beat it out of them in Christian love, right? Because I, you know, but but seriously, I mean, it, it's we, something. We, we, we may have to yeah. edit that part <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, we have to edit that out. <laughs> yeah, but but seriously, and you know, the thing is, we have to beat it out of ourselves because we can easily lapse into this idea of thinking that, well, if I'm leading a retreat or doing a podcast about something religious like Luther or, uh, you know, teaching a woman's Bible study or whatever it may be, that that's spiritual. But when I go home and change diapers uh, or take my kids to soccer practice or work as an accountant solving somebody's tax dilemma, well, you know, then I'm not doing ministry. No, no, no. We got to get rid of that. And see, I think Luther... Uh, gives us the tools. Well, the Bible gives us the tools, but he helps us to see what the Bible shows us about these things. That is such an important point. I've been working with students, like high school students, for decades, and I found one of the greatest reasons they fail to live out their faith is this compartmentalization that I have my spiritual life over yeah, here that's right. and my secular life over there. So bridging that gap, I would argue, is one of the most important tasks in the church today, professors, pastors, and parents. So thank you for drawing that out. Last quick question, then we'll wrap up. Sure. If you're going to recommend one book, and it's got to be one book, mm -hmm. not an academic book, either a beginning or kind of intermediate book for our audience just to understand the Reformation and maybe why it's important, what would be that book you would recommend? Oh, wow. You're going to make me recommend one book. <laughs> well, you know, uh, on the question of vocation, since we spent a fair amount of time on that, let me say that if, if for a popular level book that would be very good, and I think this is such an important issue, and it'll give you some broader insights on Luther as well, Gene Edward Veith, it's called God at Work. Um, a more technical one is by Gustav Wingren called Luther on Vocation, but it's pretty technical, and I don't know if, how many people would want to slog through that. But uh, then on the Reformation solas, uh, Matthew Barrett, has uh, for a recent, I mean, there's tons of books on this, but Matthew Barrett has come out with a, a recent volume, uh, you know, on this uh, in the last, I don't know, year, I don't remember the date, but very recent. That would be a good one to, to go to. I knew he couldn't limit himself. I knew it. All right, all right, all right. I, I knew it. It was a rough crowd. Yeah. Professor Gomes, thanks so much for coming on, and even more importantly, just the work you've been doing for decades, writing and, and teaching on this. It's so, so important. So Great. thank you for that. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Professor Alan Gomes, and to find more episodes, go to www.biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.